So here's the scene. My freshman year of college, first semester, public speech class. Big, bland, 70s-style lecture hall with a thousand rows of teeny tiny desks made for a time when students were apparently the size of elves and took notes on postage stamps. We tracking? And not only that, by the way, but, but back in the day, we had to scrunch into those, those thin plastic bendy chairs, right? Like 90% of which were, of course, cracked, which meant that if you weren't five to ten minutes early for class... You were stuck with having to sit on sort of one cheek at a time to avoid the crack. And then on top of that, to avoid back cramps, you had to keep switching cheeks while taking notes on your little postage stamps. Things were different back in the day, young people. Things were different. By the way, for the youngins, let me explain what a postage stamp is. We used to send information to each other by writing it on paper and then folding that paper and putting it into another piece of folded paper that had a flap that we would seal closed by, get this kids, licking dried glue. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's how it worked. <laughs> and then we would send those papers to faraway lands via ancient modes of transportation called horses, cars, planes, trains, and even people by putting a small one inch by one inch postage stamp on the envelope, which proved that we had already paid the delivery fee for the sending. It was magic. And just to be clear about how things were back in the day, because like the envelope, this may explain some things about your parents. We used to affix this postage stamp to the front of the envelope by, again, you guessed it, licking dried glue. It was awesome. Those were the days. Literally the closest I've ever been to high. So. Back to public speech class. It was the last day of class, which was the end of two weeks of 60 students giving five-minute speeches on all matter of trivia, like how to walk, how to tie a tie, why frogs are the best animal. And because there's always this goober in every class who thinks they're being clever, a speech on how to give speeches. Really? You don't think the rest of us didn't think about that and reject that idea in about two seconds? Please. Folks, can we all agree to no more students giving speeches on how to give speeches in a class on how to give speeches? Now, a speech on why it's a terrible idea for students to give speeches on how to give speeches, that's a wonderful idea. So here I was, next to last speech, trying to persuade 59 students and one prof why, according to Aristotle's categories of logos, pathos, and ethos, soccer is obviously superior to the silly game we ethnocentric Americans call football, which I thought, of course, would be an easy topic because my thesis was self-evident. Here I was four minutes into my speech when I had that moment. It was the first time I'd experienced it. It's that, that public speaking moment of abject fear and dread. When you begin to feel what your audience is feeling and it isn't enjoyment. I remember having looked down for the first four minutes, looking up at them long enough to feel their eyes pleading for help from me. I would rather be anywhere else in the universe than right here, right now, listening to you, literally, anywhere. Please stop. I'm begging. So at that moment, four minutes in, 
I freaked out. I chucked the three by five card. I literally threw it out and I blurted out a passionate off the cuff plea about how football is boring, has too many stops and starts. There's no flow to the game and soccer players, duh, have higher IQs. And then I concluded with this final heartfelt challenge to come to the game tonight because why in the world would you want to do anything other than come celebrate with hundreds of other believers the empirical truth that I'm declaring before you now that soccer is the most beautiful game in the world. In my mental recollection of these events this week as I was preparing my sermon, my speech ended with the entire class erupting in applause and wiping away tears. But I'm pretty sure I persuaded nary a soul and they were mostly just glad it was over. So in Galatians 5, 7 to 12, after Paul has spent two plus chapters methodically working through his main points by giving well-reasoned theological arguments and providing evidence from scripture and using visual aids and doing his version of Aristotle's logos, ethos, and pathos, it's like he suddenly realizes he's four minutes in and their eyes are starting to glaze over because he has said to them over and over again, the Judaizers are liars. The gospel can only be free. Circumcision counts for nothing. And so what he does is he chucks the three by five card and he sort of blurts out this parenthetical crazy rant in chapter five, verses seven to 12 to sort of wake them up. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. What on earth? does all that mean? (laughs) Well, other than verse 12, we already pretty much know what he means there. So what we'll see today here is that in the middle of a larger section in chapter five, where, where Paul is affirming freedom in Christ over against slavery through circumcision, he goes off on this parenthetical rant here, not just because he's worried the Galatians aren't hearing the truth of freedom, but ultimately, as we'll see here, to make the point that preaching circumcision, as the false teachers were doing, that removes the necessary offense of the gospel and renders it powerless to save. So our main direction here today in Galatians 5, 7 to 12 is this. To preach circumcision is to neuter the gospel of its necessary offense. To preach circumcision is to remove the offense of the cross. Now, it'll take us a while to get there, but stick with me and let's jump in at verse seven. This is where Paul starts by saying, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul is like, what happened? Everything was just fine. And things were going well when you first started following Christ. Who was hindering you from moving forward in the same way that you started? Who's trying to tempt you away from grace and into self-righteousness? Now, I want you to notice here that Paul uses a statement and a rhetorical question that both use the metaphor of running a race. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Let me explain. 
So in the ancient Greek world, they didn't run races around a track and there weren't any lanes and they probably didn't have officials watching or electronic timing and they probably had to ride on tiny desks and cracked plastic seats. Instead, they ran to the post and back. And this word hindered that Paul uses here in verse 7 is made up of two smaller words, cut and in. And so this word hindered was often used to describe how even though there were rules to the contrary, even back then, runners would cheat by cutting in or, or tripping, or like Paul says here, by hindering the other runners, other runners, especially at the turn of a race, at the post, because that was the perfect time to trip up one of the other runners. So Paul is saying here, you started out so well. Why are you letting someone cut in on you to, to keep you from finishing the way you started? Don't let them hinder your progress. Stand up, dust yourself off, and keep running the way you started the race. Keep running the race the way you started. What got you here is what will get you back. And if it's, if it's the gospel of free grace that got you here, even if somebody's trying to hinder you, it's that same gospel of free grace that will get you back to the finish line. Paul speaks about the Christian life as a race in quite a few places in his New Testament writings. For example, in Hebrews 12, 1, he says, let us run the race with endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In 2 Timothy 2, 5, he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. In fact, earlier in Galatians, in Galatians 2, 2, Paul spoke of how he tested the gospel of free grace. He tested his own understanding of the gospel with the apostles and the bigwigs in Jerusalem. Why? In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. In order to make sure that he was running the race the right way by grace. So Paul says, run the race the same way you started, even if you're hindered, even if someone trips you up. Before the Judaizers began to pervert your understanding of the gospel, Paul says to the Galatians, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying that truth? Go back to the way you started and don't let anyone cut in on your path to the finish line. And then he says this, now, whoever it was, verse 8, this persuasion, meaning the temptation to give up on the gospel of grace and to obey their gospel of circumcision, this persuasion to give up, he says, verse 8, is not from him who calls you. He says, this isn't from God. Remember back in Galatians 1, 6, Paul starts the entire letter by saying, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting. And then he says, him who called you in the grace of Christ. Verse 8 here is a callback to that idea of him who calls you in the grace of Christ in 1.6. So here in verse 8, this persuasion, this temptation to give up on grace and to obey the gospel of circumcision from the Judaizers, this persuasion is not from the God who called you to himself through the grace of Christ, he says. And then Paul quotes a, a well-known uh, aphorism, a common saying. In verse 9, he says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, leaven is just another word for yeast, which is basically old dough that causes bread to rise when you're making a new loaf of bread. And if you've ever made bread, you know that it only takes a small amount of yeast to make the whole loaf, the whole lump, as he says here, 
to rise. It doesn't take much. So Paul is picturing here the dramatic effect that a small and, and intensive thing can have in the whole congregation extensively. He's saying that a little leaven, just a, a little addition, like requiring circumcision, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little circumcision requirement infects the whole congregation and it messes up the essential definition of the gospel of grace. And it doesn't take much in the way of false teachers or their teaching to infect the whole church, right? In fact, it might have only been one guy. Look at verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. You'll come around to understand again that the gospel is of grace and by grace. If indeed you're one of God's own, he's saying, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So perhaps according to what we read here, there is basically just one dude, just one guy who is creating most of this havoc among the Galatians. We can't be sure and we don't really have enough evidence to know, but think about it. <laughs> At the top of sorts of, of just about every single movement or group you've ever been a part of, there's usually one main ringleader and it's likely that there was just one main ringleader of the Judaizers. Now, that's not really much leaven, is it? It doesn't take much. And Paul says, and whoever it is, God will deal with him. So Paul says here in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord. Despite the Judaizers' attempts to hinder your progress by insisting on circumcision, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. That you will, if you got here by grace, you will keep going by grace. And that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. God will deal with the troublemaker, Paul says. God will deal with the troublemaker, so I'm not worried about it. Now that's a good word there, friends, for all you anxiety-ridden worriers like me. Let God do what God can do. And let him deal with the troublemakers in your life. And carry on worry-free. I'm awesome at that myself. So then Paul makes what seems like a weird turn to ask a confusing question in order to make a really important point. Weird turn, confusing question, but really important point. Look at verse 11. He asks this question, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision... Why am I still being persecuted? So apparently there were some who were saying that Paul himself had previously preached circumcision, which was once true before he met Christ, right? I mean, I mean, Paul, who was once a Jew, in fact, he was a Pharisee who upheld the law and was persecuting the church and thus preached circumcision as an ongoing requirement of the law as required for salvation. That was who he was, but that was before he met Christ. So when he says, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? He's saying, if I were still preaching that circumcision was part of the essential truths of the gospel that saves, which I am not, and you all know I'm not, then why am I still being persecuted by these Judaizers? If I were still preaching circumcision, then why are my 
theological opponents, the Judaizers, who are themselves preaching circumcision, why are they fighting against me? If that were so, keep reading. In that case, if I were preaching circumcision, he says, then the offense of the cross, the cross as a, as a trap or a stumbling block to human efforts to be saved, has been removed. Now we'll come back and we'll conclude with the second half of verse 11 here in just a few seconds. But let's cover verse 12, where Paul concludes with what we're going to call an expression of exasperation at the Judaizers. He says this, verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. If they're so hung up, Paul says, on this cutting ritual, then they might as well go the whole way. That's really all we're going to say about that verse. Okay, so back to the second half of verse 11. He says, in that case, if I were preaching circumcision, then the offense of the cross, the cross as a, as a trap or a stumbling block to human efforts to be saved, then the offense of the cross, if I've been preaching circumcision, has been removed. This language of the cross as an offense is something that Paul says in a few places in his writings and that he has picked up from Old Testament passages that speak of the work of God in sending a Messiah who would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And Paul is wanting to make clear here that the offense of this Messiah's coming is essential to Christianity. Christianity, Paul says here, is offensive because it requires a perfect sacrifice and you cannot be that sacrifice. Christianity is offensive because at its heart, in terms of the essential stuff that makes it what it is, without which when you take it out, it isn't what it is. Christianity is offensive because at, it heart, at its heart, it offends all human efforts at goodness before God. Which means when you preach circumcision, and you insist on anything other than Christ alone as a means of, of righteousness or justification between God and man, then you have removed the essentially important function of the cross to offend all human efforts at salvation. It's like you've said, you can be made right before God without Christ if you preach circumcision. It's why in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 4, Paul says that contrary to the wisdom of the world that claims that goodness and righteousness before God can be achieved with human effort, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So friends, if your way of communicating what Jesus did on the cross doesn't offend human effort to save self, then it is not the cross. If the way you talk about what it means to be saved doesn't stand as a stumbling block to all forms of humanity's project to save self, 
then you aren't talking about the gospel. If the way you preach the gospel and you talk about God and you communicate who he is for you in Christ doesn't offend human efforts to save, you are not preaching the gospel of grace. And you have misunderstood something beautiful and wonderful about what God did for you in his son, Jesus. Namely, that he was the perfect sacrifice for you. That you cannot be. Friends, it's the grace of God that is the power of God, which saves the children of God by the Son of God. Friends, I want to simply end today by asking you a personal question. Based on our main point that to preach circumcision is to neuter the gospel of its necessary offense. And the question is this. What part of the offense of the cross have you sidestepped because you couldn't admit you needed Christ's perfection to make up for your empty human efforts? What part of the offense of the cross have you sidestepped because you couldn't admit you needed Christ's perfection to make up for your empty human efforts? What part of this essential truth that only by accepting God's undeserved favor that you cannot earn and that you don't deserve can you know him and be saved by him? Are you avoiding or have you misunderstood? Friends, there is no other way to come to Christ except through the cross that demands death to your human efforts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we admit before you that we have in our own ways removed the stumbling block that is the perfection of Christ achieved for us by him and that there's not another way we admit before you that we have in our human efforts fashioned after our own hearts, idols, and desires, ways to come to know you that add to who you are for us in Christ, what you've done for us in Jesus, his perfect sinless life, alone sacrificed for us by which we can know you as Savior and Lord in ways that give us forever relationship. We admit before you, Lord, that in our interactions with others, we impose a messianic weight that those relationships can't bear, that no one else could hold up to, in the same ways we ourselves cannot. And that when we do that, Lord, not only have we removed the offense of the cross, but we've taken the sin that requires your son Jesus as our Savior and imposed that atonement on those relationships and those other people because we haven't trusted you. And so, Lord, we ask that that you would reshape our hearts and continue to teach us what grace is. So that you would be glorified. So that the cross would be highlighted. 
so that the offense against human efforts would be made clear in our own lives and others, so that you alone will receive the glory. Because, Father, you alone are perfect and good, holy in every way. And when we humble ourselves to that truth, we admit that we need you and that there's not another way. So, Lord, offend us. Help us to understand those places where we've sidestepped the truth. That the grace that we know as the salvation we have comes through your son Jesus alone, by faith in him alone. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen.